Welcome to Whole Complete Self Podcast, where we teach people how to live a joyful life. We are so happy that you came to join us today. Welcome and thank you for joining us. We have my friend Heidi Stanger with us today. Heidi, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Hey, will you take a moment and just introduce yourself and let our listeners know about you? Yeah, I um, am a mom to four children, uh, an 18 year old son, 16 year old daughter, 13 year old daughter, and a 12 year old son. My husband Ryan and I have been married for 23 years. We've lived in um, Utah and Boston, Massachusetts, and then now Phoenix, Arizona. We've been in Arizona for 12 years. My husband, Ryan has had two kidney transplants and, uh, our son Maxwell, who is 12 is autistic and has an intellectual disability. And in our free time as a family, we love to play games. Uh, we love to ride bikes together and we really love to laugh. Thank you so much. I just want to paint kind of a portrait for our listeners here of Heidi Stinger. She is honestly one of the most beautiful, wonderful, happy, outgoing people. And you would never know that she has had these really hard trials in her life. And, you know, on these podcasts, I think about people that inspire me and you're one of them, Heidi, because you have gone through these really challenging things and it's almost like a daily struggle. And what I've noticed is, is that Heidi really has a lot of hope and she's very happy despite those things. And so I wanted to have her on and just kind of speak to us about what her life has been like, um, the trials that she's been through and how she continues to have that faith over fear throughout the days that are difficult and, and, um, you know, times where she's almost lost her husband and not knowing what to do with an intellectual child with an intellectual disability and, and all of those struggles. Um, I would just love for this time to be your moment to share your story with us and your faith with us and give us some hope and how we can kind of relate to that. All right. So I want to actually start way back in my childhood because there were experiences in my childhood that obviously shaped who I am today and the perspective that I have today. Um, so when I was 10, my little brother drowned and I found him in our pool. He was resuscitated. He spent nine months in the hospital. Six of those months, he was on a respirator. Eventually my mom fought really hard to be able to bring him home. He had 24 hour nursing care. He was two when he drowned. He lived for almost two years, but he was severely brain damaged and severely handicapped. And then one night in his sleep, he just passed away. And at the time, we were living in Maryland and my dad had actually been out of work for nine months and he had um, found a new job in Minnesota. So he was commuting. He was in Minnesota the night that my brother died. And, you know, obviously that was a really, just that entire process, watching people serve our family during that time. And also having the perspective of, you know, that type of a, um, that almost magnitude of a, of a, of trial in, in our lives, um, kind of having a front row seat to some degree of how that affected our family, um, has really stayed with me and it's shaped the person who I am today and how I respond to, you know, how about how I've responded to my own trials. Then I'll fast forward to 
um, when Ryan and I got married, um, shortly after, within the first year, he started having some uh, some strange symptoms, you know, mostly it was just like, they were minor. It was like, he noticed some blood in his urine. He at the time was a pre-med major at BYU. So, you know, he recognized some of these things as, as concerning and went to the doctor where he was misdiagnosed with, uh, nothing wrong. And, um, so which actually was a gift because for the next two years, uh, two or three years, I got to live blissfully unaware of, of what was about to unleash in our lives. So when our oldest was about six months old, Ryan started having some more severe symptoms. And it was like, during this time, there, there weren't this, like there was this three and a half year span of time from the first symptom until more severe symptoms that we didn't really know there weren't symptoms. It was very interesting. And, but when, when William was about six months old, he started having pitting edema and he went back to the doctor and they said, we think you have kidney disease, which I didn't know anything about. I had never met anyone with kidney disease. I didn't know what that looked like or what that meant. And they said, you'll eventually need a transplant. And in my mind, I held on to eventually, um, and kind of just put it aside. It was a year it was a year later that he went into total renal failure. It was really fast. People had told us, you know, it'll be, it's like, takes like decades for kidneys to fail. And that was not our experience. So I remember having gone, I had just had our second baby. She was six months old or six weeks old. And I had, I remember having gone to my six month or six week postpartum appointment. Ryan had gone in that morning because he was feeling really terrible. And at this point they'd been monitoring him and doing weekly blood work because they knew that he was going to need to go on dialysis. We weren't ready for a kidney transplant at this point. We didn't, we didn't have a donor like workup done or anything. So I remember coming back from that appointment and the doctor calling and saying, we're sending an ambulance. There is a team waiting for you at the ICU. We should have started you on dialysis a week ago. We're not sure how we missed the signs, but your potassium is so high that we think you're going to go into cardiac arrest at any moment. So that was obviously concerning. And it was this emergency, you know, and, and I passed off my baby and my, and my toddler and to my brother and his wife who were living close by. And we went to the hospital and they, they did this surgery where they put in a subclavian catheter and they started him immediately on dialysis. And, um, that was the beginning of like, that was the beginning of like a whole new normal, um, that I had to embrace. So, um, he ended up being on dialysis for a year and a half. And that in itself was a whole process. The process of, of getting your body used to dialysis is actually really challenging and can be very painful when you go into renal failure your kidneys haven't been working for so long that you're retaining like a lot of fluid because you're, you know, cause you're not urinating or you're urinating very little. So when you first start dialysis, they don't know what is your, they call it your dry weight and they don't know what your dry weight is. And it's the weight that you are with all that fluid pulled off your body. So they have to guess. And when they do the dialysis treatments, that's part of the process is they pull this extra fluid out of your body and they, um, and because when you go in center for, for dialysis treatments, you're every other day. So they have to 
take off enough fluid that the following day when you don't urinate at all, you know, that that doesn't overload your system. So they would, they would dehydrate him is essentially what they would do, but sometimes they would dehydrate him too much. And he'd come home from dialysis with like the worst pain of his life. Um, I mean, I, there were days that he was like writhing in pain. I remember one day he was just like, he came in and he fell on the stairs and I had to immediately, I had to pawn off my children again. I had to rush him to the hospital. They had to give him fluids. Um, I don't know, you know, if you've, if you've experienced a dehydration headache, but that's what this was. Um, and they're pretty severe. So there was that process, but also at the time he'd been accepted to dental school in Boston, we were planning to move. And so in order to accommodate his dental school schedule, we realized that we needed to do dialysis in our home because his schedule was really rigorous and there wasn't the time in the day to make the appointment for the, you know, dialysis appointments, like four and a half hours. So we started training to learn how to do hemodialysis at our home so that we could accommodate a school schedule once we moved. Um, and that took me away for nine hours a day from my kids, which, you know, was challenging in itself, right? Anyway, we learned that we moved to Boston. We started doing dialysis at home. Brian was in school. He would go to school. He would, he would leave for school about 6 a.m., and he would come home about 7 p.m. And I would hook him up to his machine. Um, this process took about five, between four, five and six hours every night. And we did it six days a week. And it was something that we just did. You know, it was like he went to school, I took care of the kids, he came home. I took care of the kids. I put him on dialysis. I monitored his vitals. You know, we were on dialysis. He was on dialysis till the wee hours of every morning. And then we did it all over again the next day, 6 a.m. He was out the door again. And I remember during this time, every week I had to pull, I had to draw blood out of the lines. And then I would send it off, you know, like we had, I had a delivery guy that would come and pick it up at the house and they would send it off to do his lab work to check levels of whatever to see what medications we needed to add in and you know all the, those types of things when I had this um it was the same UPS driver that always came and they were these were live samples so they have to come to your house and like you have to hand it to them and and uh we we would start talking and we kind of got to know each other and he said to me one day how like he knew he knew our story and I remember him saying how is it that you are going through this and, and you're happy. And that was really the first time that I had considered that what we were experiencing, you know, like I, I felt that it was hard, but I didn't articulate it that way. It just was something that we had to do. And that was really the first time that I considered how much my faith played a role in how we managed this whole situation and our thoughts and our, our actions through this whole situation. Cause up to that point, it, it just, I just, I think we'd been too busy to even consider it. Uh, and I, I remember saying to him, well, there's a lot to be happy about, you know, like I have these two little darling children and, and my husband's in dental school. And I knew at that time that this was a temporary thing that eventually he would have a kidney transplant and then we would move on with our lives. So I never was afraid, really. Anyway, I think that's the first thing that I have recognized is that 
my faith, my belief in God, my belief in um, God's plan for me and for my family, I realize that that has played an enormous role in how I've responded to these, these things. And also in how Ryan's responded to these things. He's actually pretty amazing. Basically everything to him is neutral. So he's never emotional about anything, whereas I'm definitely more inclined to be, you know, get exhausted and emotional where he just, he just stays the course, you know? Um, I don't know how else he could have lived on five hours of sleep for a year and a half and dealt with the rigor of a first year dental school student without managing his thoughts and understanding like this is God's plan for me and he's going to make it okay. Doing dialysis at home brings all of its own issues. And we dealt with those as they came. Mostly it was like we would accidentally perforate through the, the artery and he would have an arm full of blood and we would have to stop the machine. There was a time that um, I gave him five times more heparin, which is a blood thinner than I was supposed to. It was, I just grabbed the wrong bottle. There were two different strengths and I grabbed the wrong bottle. He definitely didn't clot after we took the needles out that night and ended up in the hospital. That was quite a experience because he ended up bleeding arterial blood flow at a store in downtown Boston. And we went into their bathroom and took off his jacket and his coat and his sweater and all the things that he was bleeding through. And literally it was arterial blood flow. So it's like squirting on the mirror in this bathroom. And we, it was, it was an emergent situation. We literally just left it there and went out to find a medic. You know, this was on Thanksgiving uh, in the middle of downtown Boston. So that was, that was an experience. There was a time that, uh, his, he had a subclavian catheter, but then he also had an AV fistula. Uh, the catheter was like, it was like tubes straight into his heart and it came out his chest. And that was super easy to work with because there was no clotting that was needed. There was no needle in his actual body, but those, those get infected and it did. And so we had to use an AV fistula, which is like where they join a vein and an artery in your arm so that you have arterial blood flow at the surface. And that, um, you know, presented a whole new, a whole new set of its own challenges. Anyway, after his first year of dental school, he was able to get it, receive a kidney from his mom. That was a really neat experience because we had received, he had received a blessing when he first went into renal failure that said that he would be healed. And in my mind, that meant that like, he would never need a kidney transplant. So then when he went into renal failure, I thought oh, we failed, like we failed this process because he's supposed to be healed. And then leading up to that transplant, I had so much fear of what our lives would look like after that transplant or what I had some anxiety about, like, what would the next hard thing be? I remember getting that kidney, having that surgery that morning and, and the doctor calling and saying the kidney's in and it's producing urine and it's beautiful. And, uh, just feeling like in that moment, like this is our miracle. The miracle is that doctors can take an organ from one person who can live with only one organ and give it to another person. And then they can literally get their life back. That was such a gift. And I feel so grateful, obviously, 
but his mom truly gave him life twice. You know, she, she bore him as an infant and then as an adult, she was able to give him life again. How long did that first kidney last for? So that first kidney lasted for almost 13 years. Okay. And then fast forward to the second kidney is kind of around when you learned about your youngest son. Is that correct? It was all, yes. So it was similar. The timing was, it was like every six months for a few years, there was a new punch to the gut. It was like a new diagnosis or a new struggle. So that first kidney, we had five really good years with it. And then um, after we moved, he graduated from dental school. We moved to Arizona. There was one like um, one fall where he caught something that ended up, it was like a cold that ended up moving into his lungs and it caused permanent lung damage. And this was a process that legitimately took us eight years to manage. It took six months to even figure out what was happening. They never determined what caused the problem, only that he now had permanent lung damage. And, um, so this was now a new machine. We had, um, a vest, which if people who are familiar with, with a cystic fibrosis patient, they, they use the vest. It just, it blows up like a blood pressure cuff. You put it on your chest, it blows up like a blood pressure cuff, and then it pounds air. And it allows you when you've lost the elasticity in your lungs to cough up the phlegm that's sitting in the lungs, because you can't cough it out. So that was a, a process of many years of trying to manage that situation in and out of the hospital, multiple pneumonias per year. And there, that was, those were the times it was actually the lung condition. It was during that time that I felt like I'm going to lose him. My children may not have a father to grow up with. And somehow I have to, I have to somehow wrap my mind around that because if that is God's plan for me, then I, then it's going to be okay. Um, and during this time, I had these four little children because we had two more kids after during dental school. And that fourth one was really hard. Like from the minute he was born, he was really, really hard, but we were so consumed with Ryan's health problems with his lung condition that I, I missed a lot of signs. I just knew that Max was really hard. And I remember at the end of certain days, looking at my husband looking at the house that was destroyed and looking at my husband and saying, do you think heavenly father's as frustrated with us as we are with our children? <laughs> and that giving me so much perspective, like it, it, and also feeling like, because my own parents had lost their son, feeling like just grateful that I still had these little people in my home. You know, I still could hold them in my arms and that experience with my brother has truly like allowed me to have that perspective in a way that I could not have ever had it. In addition, my, my husband's father was killed in an accident when he was 13. So I, I, I remember always feeling like I get my husband, he's still here and I get my children, they're still here. And so at the end of really hard days, when Ryan, you know, had to be hospitalized yet again for another bout with pneumonia and Max was exhausting me, I just remember feeling like, but they're still here. I still get them. 
anyway, so fast forward to, um, it was like February, it was October of 2016. He was hospitalized. He'd had pneumonia so many times that year that um, he was now no longer responding to the antibiotics. And he was hospitalized with dense pneumonia in both lungs. And um, he was there for five days at the Mayo Clinic. And they were the first hospital in the area that had started to say, okay, hang on, there's lots of people that have, that are immunosuppressed from a, an organ transplant who also have bronchiectasis, which is the name of his lung condition, who aren't having repeated pneumonias every year. Like what is the problem? And they had this entire multidisciplinary team that came in and asked all these questions. And we realized during that stay that Ryan had chronic sinusitis. So in February of 2017, he had sinus surgery and did not ever have another pneumonia for like, well, it was like three years until he had another bout with pneumonia. And it, I was in this, this like honeymoon period of like, he's not sick again. Like I would wake up every day and be like, he's not sick. Oh my gosh. I mean, it was, it was such a gift that we got to like, it was like my, my heart got to rest a little bit from the worries of, of, you know, are, are we doing this again? Does he need to go see the doctor again? Does he need to be in the hospital again? And it was the first time that I had started to, I think because that, that burden was removed to some degree, I started to notice some things in, in our son in Maxwell that I was articulating better. And I was questioning like, hang on, what is that? What is, you know, why does he do that? That's kind of quirky. I mean, we knew there were delays, but we didn't know exactly what. So we sought out a private evaluation. And um, so in February, he had the surgery. And then in November of that same year, we, we had a private evaluation and they told us he has an intellectual disability. It's moderate and he will probably be dependent upon you the rest of, of his life. And that was a turning point for me. Like I remember thinking when my parents lost my, when my, when my brother drowned, that that changed my parents' whole life. And I remember thinking this changes my whole life. And it was dark. There were some really dark days. I remember feeling like, like talking to heavenly father and just saying, hang on. I got from February to November. That's all I got off. And now we're doing this again. And this grief, like feeling this grief of grieving what I thought was his future and my future, grieving the loss of that and having to rethink what, what success was going to look like for Max and what my future was going to look like with Max. And that was a really hard process. And during that time, this is the one thing that I've seen in my life consistently is that there are actual miracles that occur during the darkest days of my life. So we had this um, diagnosis in November and um, it was the end of November. And it took me a couple of weeks to get to a point where I could even talk about it. And when I finally got to a place where I could reach out to other people, I mean, there was this whole community of people that needed to know um, because this was information that helped them interact with Max. Um, and so I drafted a text message that just said, this is the information we've received about Max. This is what it means. And then I am not ready to talk about it. 
and I put the WebMD, a link to a WebMD article about what an intellectual disability was. And I sent it out to the people that I felt needed to know. I was met with so much love, you know, in a time when I felt like I was on an island completely by myself. I'd never met someone who just had an intellectual disability. And I didn't know what that looked like. I, I thought he'd had a myriad of, of learning disabilities. And so I'd identified with this. And then when they said, no, no, it's not learning disabilities, it's an intellectual disability. That's really different. So Heidi, can you share with us how it's different, how an intellectual disability is different from maybe autism or learning disabilities? Because I know when, when you told me about Max for the first time, I had never heard intellectual disability before. So um, an intellectual disability is a low IQ essentially. And it used to be called mental retardation. That is not a term that is used anymore because some find it offensive, but that was a term that was helpful to me in understanding what that meant. So Max looks like every other kid. He looks like his typical peers. He doesn't, he's 12. He, he reads at maybe a first grade level. And this is after intensive reading, you know, one-on-one, a lot of reading therapies and such. Um, He talks like maybe he's four or five. We actually later learned that he is also autistic. So he's very quirky as well. He has some of those autistic quirks and and outbursts and tics and uh, fixations and those sorts of things. But it's different than than a learning disability in the respect that um, a learning disability is a difference between there's typically a, a normal or a high IQ but this inability to read or write or do math, depending upon the learning disability. Whereas with Max, there's no discrepancy. Like it all matches up. The IQ piece matches up with where he is academically. And so his prognosis is that in his prime, which for a boy is in their early thirties, you know, that he might be as, you know, he might operate as a 12 year old. That is like, that's our prognosis. So, you know, we're sitting in that appointment with this diagnosis and my husband's like, well, will he ever drive, you know, and, um, will he ever, you know, live independently? And we don't know what that's going to look like, but based upon the information that we have, the answers to those things are probably no. And then when you throw in that autism piece, um, it kind of makes it feel like even more like, Max is going to definitely live with us for a very long time, maybe forever. Anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. I actually want to back up just a little bit to the first miracle during that diagnosis. When we sat in that appointment with that doctor, I was shocked because I had identified with learning disabilities and I was certain that that's what he had. And um, so I sat with her, I mean, in total disbelief. And I said, but wait a second, like there's these moments where I see brilliance. Like I see, I see like that he understands this or that he does this. And there are moments of this, like, how could this diagnosis be right? And she said, so it's like this night sky. She said, most of the time, it's just the night sky, but every once in a while, you'll see a shooting star and it's beautiful and it's brilliant and it's amazing. But most of the time you have to live with the regular old night sky. And that was on a Friday that we had this, this, um, evaluation that Sunday night. So like two days later, we were sitting on our porch. My heart was so heavy 
in my life, I maybe have seen, I, I've maybe seen five shooting stars in my life up to this point. And the biggest, brightest shooting star I've ever seen, Ryan and I both saw it. Our neighbor that we were sitting with, he saw it. Like shot across the sky. And I remember feeling like, it was like God's way of saying, I've got you. Like, I've got this. It's going to be okay. And over the course of the next year, I saw 20 more shooting stars. I was not making these up. It was, it was remarkable. And every time I saw them, it felt like a little miracle. It felt like God giving me a hug and saying, he is still yours. You still get to hold him every day and it's going to be okay. Anyway, that was, that was just such a gift to me. I felt like it was God's way of speaking to me. Anyway, so another miracle that occurred during that time was um, after I had reached out to these friends and just said, you know, here's the, here's the situation. Here's the diagnosis. I'm not ready to talk about it. Um, a few days later, our doorbell rang and my kids went to answer the door and I hear squeals of delight. And this is the early December at this point. And they're screaming, mom, somebody decorated our house for Christmas. And um, we walk outside and there's lights and there's reindeer and there's this massive blow up Santa. Our house was decorated for Christmas, which was something that we did not ever do. I always wanted us to do it, but we never did it. Again, it was like, it was like a hug. It was like, it was, it was like, I felt like I'm, I wasn't alone in that moment because I had felt so alone with this new diagnosis that I was unfamiliar with. And so in that moment, I felt like I'm not alone. There's people who love us. They may not understand, but they love us and they love Max. And I've never forgotten that. And every year at Christmas time, when I pull out that blasted blow up Santa, it's like a piece of heaven. It's like a reminder of the goodness of people who love us. And to me in that moment, at that time, that was a total miracle, you know, just that. And since then, I have talked to the people, the person who was in charge of orchestrating that whole thing because we've, you know, the kids figured out who it was. And um, she said, I just was driving down the street one day feeling like, who can I help? And I had a prayer in my heart of who can I help thinking of all these people, you know, like that didn't have enough. And she said, your name came to mind. And I was so perplexed by that because I knew that you didn't need like, you know, someone to buy Christmas presents. Like you didn't have the financial burdens that, that we so often think of when we think of who can we help. And she said, it was very clear to me that I needed to get a blow up Santa and I needed to get lights and we needed to decorate your house. And she actually enlisted a, a number of of members of our congregation and members of our neighborhood who are not members of our congregation. And they were all part of this. And I think it was, it was clearly a blessing for me, but it was a blessing for them to be able to see the joy that they brought during such a dark time. I love that. Yeah. Anyway, so six months after this, so it was June of the following year, Ryan was in renal failure again, and it came on really fast. And we noticed the symptoms and he went to the doctor and the doctor said, oh yeah, sure enough, you've, you've got about 20% function left. So we need to start looking for a new kidney. I felt, I remember feeling at that time, my grief from this diagnosis with, with Max, I felt it like I literally felt a physical movement of this grief onto a shelf. 
And it, that was also a blessing because um, from June of that year till April of the following year, when he actually got the kidney, it was like one thing after another just kept happening. And I didn't have the capacity to be grieving anything else at that point. I just, I only had the capacity to keep my husband, you know, just to manage all of these situations, all these things that occurred, all these health complications that occurred uh, between then and, and when he actually received the kidney. You know, as I listen to your story, I hear this theme of faith over fear. And then I also hear this story, which I hear a lot with people who've gone through really hard things. It's just how much connection and, and people reaching out and, and helping you um, is such a big part of our grieving. Oh, absolutely. The human kindness that we have been shown, I will spend a lifetime repaying. And I actually remember feeling that way after my brother died. He was so handicapped and so much work, you know, for two, the two years that he lived. And there were people from our congregation that came into our home every day. He was in the hospital for nine months. And every day, someone, someone's mom was at my house when I showed up home from school doing our laundry. There was a hot meal every day because my mom was at the hospital with my brother mm -hmm. and um for two years I mean you can't imagine the things that people did for our family during that time um and I I have always felt like I would spend a lifetime paying that forward and now it's like five lifetimes because we got to add in all this stuff that people have done for us you know, Ryan and I in our hardships and it, um, it's such a reminder that people are good and that most people just want to help and they want to be involved in goodness. And, um, it's just been such a gift to see that, especially when we, when the world feels like it's in chaos, it's a reminder to me that, um, most people are just kind. Most people just want to be good, want to do good. And that's really one of the things I love about you. I, I feel like you're really good in general about seeing the good in others. Um, but it's also been, sounds like it's just been your experience as well. Just people serving you and people really wanting to love you. Um, I have a question for you. As we've talked about these stories and really gone through the timeline of these challenging times in your adult life, if you were to look back at yourself, what is it that really got you through it? It was absolutely my faith. It was absolutely my understanding of God's plan for me personally and for Ryan and for Max and for my children. You know, at the end of a rough day, I think in the pre-existence, we chose Max like with excitement and we chose him because he was the best person to come here into our family and to teach us these things that he's teaching us. And also I agreed. I feel strongly that in the preexistence that I agreed to all of it, 
you know, and actually that I was excited for all of it because I knew who I could become through it. I remember one day our, our oldest daughter, who's now 16, she's always been a kid who just needs to be anxiously engaged and she will anxiously engage herself. She's a very productive child. And one day she literally took our, like with the screwdriver and a drill and all the things like took our refrigerator and our freezer completely apart and cleaned it in a way that it's never been cleaned and then put it all back together. Brian said to me that night, he said, did you see what she did? And I said, yeah, it's amazing. And he said, what would it be like if all of our kids were like her? And it was like, without hesitation, my response was, oh my gosh, we would suck. We would be such crappy people. We would have no perspective. Like we probably wouldn't be very nice to others. And we for sure would judge everyone else. You know, if all of our kids were just like, took the initiative to do all the, all what felt seems like all the right things. And that's when I'm so grateful that heavenly father feels like, you know what, I'm going to give you these hard things because it's going to make you better. And, and I, I can see how they have, and I haven't always felt like that. Like in the midst of these hard things, you know, there was that from June to April when, when, you know, donors were being tested to see if they were a match for Ryan's kidney, that he, he was really, he had so many complications due to, you know, renal failure. Um, you know, there was, there was, he, one morning he moved wrong and he, and it caused stress fractures in his back and he was in excruciating pain for eight weeks. And just as we were getting, he was getting over that, he came down with shingles on his face. And that was also very excruciating. And, um, they were, they eventually moved to the nerves in his eye and, you know, threatened his eyesight that derailed the whole transplant. They said, you can't have a transplant until you're better from this. So finally he recovers from that. And then the transplants is back on and, and we're fighting a clock at this point in time, because he didn't want to have to do dialysis again. We want, ideally you want to get the kidney before you're on dialysis, if you can, um, just cause it's so exhausting. It's so hard two weeks to the day before that transplant, he woke up with pneumonia and it was the first time he'd had it since that, that, that sinus surgery that had been two and a half years before. And they said that it was mild case. He immediately got on antibiotics, but there was inflammation in his lungs. And they said, you can't have this transplant. We didn't know until the night before the transplant, if he, they were going to let him have it or not. Um, and they, they did obviously, because we had a donor who could only donate on that date because of a job situation. And if, if we had had to postpone that transplant, we would have had to find a new donor. I actually just forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> well, I, you know, where I, I'm glad that you shared all those things because I love those details, but I guess what I want you to share is something that we've talked about as well. It's just during these times when you've been down and you've kind of felt victimized by life, I want you to share that vulnerability that you have with God. And you and I have talked about this before, like not cutting yourself off from God in those moments where you're feeling so frustrated with life, so victimized. Um, I really like your approach, <laughs> but it's often not talked about enough, but I think it's powerful. That is exactly where I was going with this. So thank you for that reminder. <laughs> that was a time that felt like, it felt like God just kept punching us in the face and for lack of a better term, because I never actually felt like he was doing this, you know, out of spite or punitively. I just felt like, 
why do you keep letting these things happen? And it, it was like, I didn't recognize this at the time. I didn't recognize this until after, but my prayers consisted of actual yelling. And there were some choice words to God in my prayers, because I, I recognized later that I knew he was there and I knew he was in charge. And I knew that he was going to get us through this, but it was so hard every day feeling like there's another thing that's derailing this transplant. And there's another thing that's causing so much pain for my husband. And I had a lot of strongly worded conversations with Heavenly Father during that time. Um, just, and, the, and it wasn't like, like I grew up in a time where in our church, we were taught like the proper way to pray. And it was like using thee and thou and thine and all that went out the window. It was like, I was talking to him in my room. It was like, he was standing there and I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> Why are you doing this? Is there no one else? Like I know a lot of people who have nothing going on right now who would probably do really well with a humbling experience. Why, why, am, why do we keep getting these things? And it was that vulnerability with God that drew me closer to him. Really, it was feeling like he was as close to me as my earthly father. Like I could express those frustrations to him. And really it wasn't like I was yelling at him and uh, with the occasional profanity. And then I was like, but thank you so much for this, that, and the other. It was like, I literally was just yelling at him. I was just mad. I mean, there were times that I knelt in my closet and was like, I am so angry with you. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I mean, truthfully, truthfully, that's all I could say, you know? And I, I recognized after the fact that you're right, we never hear about that. And I was totally fine talking about it because that was who I was. That's, that's how I was dealing. That's how I was communicating with God at that time was just like, what is wrong with you? Why is there nobody else who could use any of this? Anyway, that has honestly like changed my relationship with God. Just in that moment, in those vulnerable, like raw moments, I recognized that I knew he was there. And um, so I have a different relationship with him now. You know, it's like, I know, I know he's there. Um, and I don't, I'm not always yelling at him. I'm not yelling at him anymore. Oh. <laughs> because we're definitely experiencing the season of peace. And I am so grateful for that. My prayers now are more, thank you so much every day that I just have normal problems. Thank you for normal problems. But I love that you were just still turning to him, right? Because, you know, I've gone through very similar, you know, just not, not similar trials, but really hard things where I've also been that person yelling at God. And what I realized is, is that he just wants us to come to him. He just wants who we are in those times to turn to him instead of pull away from him. And so I just, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Heidi, you know, there's a lot of people right now with COVID and um, maybe job loss, you know, just a lot of people who are going through a lot of tough trials what could you tell them as far as how do they deal with what they're going through? Could you give them just end with a few key points that we've talked about? Leave with us, you know, for a couple minutes. How you get through something really hard like you have been through? 
I think, I think what I would say, obviously for me, it was, I think the number one thing that got me through that was my faith, but not everyone shares the same faith, right? We're all in a different process on our faith journey. And so if your faith is different, which I'm sure it is, I would say, look for the good because that is the difference between a good day and a bad day, to be honest with you. That is the difference between surviving something and not surviving something is that there is good in the world. I think about this friend of ours who donated his kidney to my husband. And I, I remember after that, that first day when Ryan first got the kidney, I remember having this flood of emotions and writing about it on my, just on my Instagram feed, um, about how it was such a monumental day, even though it was normal, it was totally normal for you and for all of my friends, it was just a normal day. But for me, like our world changed for Ryan, our world changed and how it broke my heart a little bit, not, not in a, not in actually a sad way, but like how I could, I was trying to come to grips with how could this man who selflessly gave an organ and literally gave my husband, his life back, literally gave our family, our our husband and our father, he gave, he gave him back. He gave him his life back. He gave us that gift. How could he now walk around the rest of his life without some sort of a sign that said, I am a hero. I have literally saved someone's life. And I think that that, well, that thought has given me so much perspective. I look at people differently now, you know, I think, first of all, I've been that person who's had a really hard day and someone hasn't been very nice to them. And it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And also I have the perspective of knowing that there is a man who walks, there is a, there's a Ryan's mom. And then this friend of ours, they walk around this world every day and nobody knows what they've done for us. No one knows that they are our actual literal heroes. And um, having that perspective really helps me see the good because there's so much bad that the media portrays. But when I look at the good and when I operate in my world under the assumption that someone's someone, these people that I, that I see on the street are probably someone's hero. They've probably, they, they could have saved someone's life or they probably are in trouble in some capacity, you know, like they, they could be having major health problems or they could have just lost a loved one going through life with that lens is a game changer. And I think it helps you see when you're looking for the good and when you're looking for the little miracles that occur, it changes your heart and it changes your experience in this world. Thank you. I love that. I, I think that's so powerful. I actually posted something so similar to that today um, about filling your mind with the good. So Heidi, thank you so much for sharing all of these stories and for being with us today. It's, it's really been great. And just, I mean, thank you for your example. Well, thank you for, thank you for having me. And I am grateful for you as a friend. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining Whole Complete Self Podcast, where we help you have a joyful life. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.